0: So good to sing praises to King Jesus together as a church, isn't it? I'm so encouraged every week to worship with you all, church. Uh, as we go before God and His Word today, let's just first take a few minutes and as a congregation, as a body, uh, pray and ask for God's work in our midst. God is honored and exalted. When his people show their dependence on him. And so we want to do that as we come to him in prayer and petition. So would you just bow your heads for a few minutes with me and let's pray? Almighty God, we, we praise you, for you are worthy of praise. You are the only perfect, omniscient, all, all powerful God. You are glorious. You are mighty, you are majestic, and we praise you today. Father, we come before you as a congregation in need. Father, we need you in our midst. Father, we we need you because we know that we are sinners. We are not like you. We are not perfect and holy. Father, we have rebelled against you. And so we need our sin covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Pray that you would forgive us of our sin give us the eyes of faith to look to jesus christ today father i pray that you would work in our congregation to build us up in jesus christ today god i pray for the individuals and families and those represented here in this room god would you work in us the growth of holiness in our lives God, would you give us the ability to put sin to death, that we would leave sin behind in our lives and that we would grow in Christ. Father, we ask you for those in this room and those in our midst who do not yet have an understanding of the gospel, who do not yet put their faith in Christ and rest in his work, and who have not repented from their sins. God, would you awaken them, even this morning, Father, as we think of our church family, we're reminded of, of many children in our church family who have not yet looked to Christ. God, would you save our children? Would you rescue them from their sin, O oh God? Would you give us parents and members of this church wisdom as we seek to raise them up in the knowledge of the Lord? And would you rescue them from their sinfulness, O okay? Father, we pray that you would work through our church as we go out this week. May we be salt and light to this community this week, God. May we speak boldly about the gospel to those in our places of work and to our neighbors, oh God. God, as we think about this, we're reminded that we are not the only gospel-preaching church here in Florida or here in Boynton Beach. Father, would you work in other like-minded churches in our area, oh God? God, would you prosper other work around us, that other assemblies like ours would raise up and preach the same gospel that we see in your word? God, would the, the gospel go forth to this community and to our state, not just through us, but through many churches like us? God, would you be glorified through many other churches? God, would you be glorified, we pray, through your work globally? You are not a tribal deity. You are the God of all creation. You are God of the whole world. We thank you for bringing our brother Vlad back and Phoebe as well. Father, would you continue to work in Ukraine? Father, I pray especially for the pastors in Ukraine today that are shepherding churches in a difficult place, a place that is hurting, a place where evil is happening. God, would you strengthen the pastors and the churches there that they may look to Christ. Father, as their faith is put to the test, may they prove the worth of Jesus Christ as he is the greatest treasure that is worth holding on to in the midst of all adversity. God, strengthen our brothers and sisters there, even the ones we've just never met. We know that they're there. We ask that you'd work, in them. we pray. And now for us here today, Father, would you be with us here? Would you open our eyes to clearly see your word? What a privilege that you have chosen to speak to us. you have revealed yourself to your people and that we can read it in our language and understand it and that we can gather and listen to your word god i pray that you would work right now not through me and my wisdom not through anything i say but rather oh god by us hearing your word we know that you work to create life through your word and your spirit so we pray You would create life in our midst today. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, a new king means a new way of life for a kingdom. Uh, On Saturday, January 9th, 2011, Jamie and I arrived for the first time to live in the Middle East. Now... That date is important because five days later, something called the Arab Spring reached our country. Uh, The Arab Spring was a series of uprisings and protests which erupted in the country that we were studying language in. And then just 11 days after that, the the uprising spread with even more force to our neighboring country, which we were headed to, and which we would spend the next 10 years of our lives living in for jamie and i our entrance into the middle east was marked by watching firsthand regime change so regime change a change of power a change of authority we watched this firsthand in our lives now here in america we're somewhat familiar with this idea after all every four to eight years, we have a whole new administration, a new president come in and and change the leadership and the shape of our country. But even more for other countries that are just less democratic, like what Jamie and I witnessed during the Arab Spring, a, a new leadership, a new authority, a new change of regime means a change for the citizens that are living under that authority. And that's what we witnessed i remember walking around the city that we lived in for all those years right after we finally received a new president and it was clear having a new authority meant a new way of life for our country practical things changed like street names or subway stops new billboards with our our leaders uh, picture were put up all around the city, and, and old photos of our previous president were taken down. Holidays were even renamed or, or created. More fundamentally, the, the conversation of the people in the country changed. What they were comfortable talking about without getting in trouble changed. Laws changed. Standards of living changed. What people were expected to do in our country changed. All of this because a new authority means a new way of life. Well, do you realize that it's the same way for those who are under King Jesus? Having Jesus as our new authority means a whole new way of life. In some ways, this is the point of the entire section that we've been in, in the letter to the Philippians. Ever since chapter 1, verse 27, you'll remember we've been talking about being gospel citizens. That is, living as those who are worthy of the gospel. Then last week, we spent the week looking at Jesus, our new authority, who, through the path of obedience, was highly exalted to be king. And now, having King Jesus on our throne affects how we as a people live. His reign means something for us. And just like me and my wife as we walked around our city in the Middle East, people should be able to walk around our community here and see that there is a new king on the throne. All of this introduction that I've just given, in some ways, is an explanation of the first word of our text today. The text begins with the word, therefore. That is, since everything that we've just seen is true, since Jesus Christ is highly exalted, since he arose to this place of exaltation through the path of obedience, what Should our obedience now look like? If you've brought your Bibles, and I hope you have, turn to Philippians chapter 2 if you haven't already. My goal today is just to explain what I believe God is saying in this passage. So it will help you if you follow along and see whether I'm doing that or not. Uh, I'm going to begin now by reading Philippians 2, 12 through 18, our passage for today. Paul writes this to the church. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So what is the shape of our obedience to King Jesus? This passage answers that question in three steps. Today we're going to see the work of obedience in the first two verses, the witness of obedience in the middle two verses, and then the worth of our obedience in the last two verses. I pray that as we study this passage together, our lives will more faithfully reflect the reign of King Jesus. So first, think with me about the work of obedience in verses 12 and 13. Uh, These verses together are incredibly important, Verses in the Bible for understanding how our obedience, how our sanctification works. Paul begins by addressing the Philippians as his beloved. These are his his dear friends. And he notes their faithful past of obedience. He says, as you have always obeyed. He's bringing up what I think is the unifying theme of the text. That is that Christians obey God. And he begins by looking back. They have obeyed. And so now, he says, and the main imperative of the text is, work out your salvation. Now, what does he mean by this? What does it mean to work out your own salvation? Does it mean you should focus real hard? Make sure that you have faith? Or maybe you should spend extra time to think hard about your salvation and what you believe. I I don't think so. I don't think that's what's in view here in this text. Let me give you two clues to what I think it does mean. First, did you notice the words, so now? Do you see that in the text? These words in English kind of function a bit like an equal sign. Whatever is before them match what's coming after them. So if I said to you, just as we've always met here on Sunday mornings, So now, we're going to continue to meet here on Sunday mornings. It's a comparative, right? Well, look what's before that. Paul says, as you have obeyed, so now, expect him to say, continue obeying. It seems that Paul is using these words, work out your salvation, in order to teach us something about our obedience, Second, look closer at these words. Work out your salvation. These words, to work out, literally translate to mean to produce or to accomplish your salvation. Now, this is important. This is the center of the verse. This is the central imperative. This is what you and I should be doing from this passage. We should be working out our salvation. Producing giving effort to accomplish our salvation. Now, hold on a second. Some of you might be saying to me right now, wait a second, Jeff. What do you mean? Isn't our salvation a gift? Doesn't Paul say in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, that to the one who does not work, but believes in him, his faith is counted as righteous? Isn't salvation not a a wage from our work, but isn't it a gift of grace? Well, absolutely. That's that's absolutely true. So, to understand this verse, we need to understand something of the nature of our salvation. That word that's used in in the text, salvation. See, Scripture speaks of salvation as something that happened decisively in the past our adoption, our justification. It's a gift and only a gift. And it also speaks of our salvation as something that is being completed now. And it also sometimes speaks of our salvation as something that's coming in the future, which we'll receive when we are one day glorified and risen to new life. And and each of these, by the way, God is the one decisively working in each part of our salvation. But here we realize that the present reality of being saved is in view. And we realize that as God works, and as we move towards our future salvation, that there is a work of obedience that God does in us, and which which we are actively involved in. So, there is a toiling that happens in the Christian life. On the pathway to future obedience you could say that the christian life is not a passive life so he's able to say work out your salvation that is being produced in you reaching the destination of your future salvation is not a passive journey you know uh perhaps some of you have have visited new york city before or or chicago And ridden a subway. On a subway, you you stand on the edge of the platform, and then the train pulls up, and you step on. And then the doors close, and the train just takes off, right? And you're whisked away to your, your next destination, regardless of anything you do. And this is evidenced by the people around you, right, as you step onto that train. Maybe one man is just sitting down on his phone over there, and and off to the side, there's some students that are talking and chatting away, or, or maybe a homeless gentleman asleep on the back of the subway, or a woman reading her book. All of them together, regardless of anything they are doing, will reach their next destination, all passively waiting. All will arrive, regardless of what they do. Well, friends this is how some people view the christian life you step onto the train when you're justified when you come to faith and you will step off the train having been saved when you reach glory but once you're on the train you're all set but this is not the biblical picture of the christian life The mystery of sanctification in our lives, and this is a mystery, is that God is the one who justifies you, and God is the one who works obedience in you, and God is the one that brings you to future glory, but this whole journey is never a passive one for you. You just can't sleep on the back of the train. Scripture is constantly teaching this idea that even as God is the primary decisive actor in the Christian life That we are still actively involved There's just too many examples to give you right now, but just let's turn together to one of them So flip over in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 verse 29. It's probably just one page over Colossians 1:29. Paul is talking about the work that he does in his ministry. This is work is actively involved, and this is what he writes in in one twenty nine. He says, "For this, it's the ministry that is doing of teaching. For this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me." Do you see the two of those working together there? Paul toils, Paul struggles, but it's. God's energy. It's God working powerfully in him. So maybe you've heard a common phrase in today's world, let go and let God. Friends, this is not a biblical worldview. The Christian life, even as you're resting in God to work, is one of faith-filled effort and obedience. It's one that's taken seriously as one who trembles before God. One that fears before God. One that fears disobeying God. I wonder if there are people here today who have adopted a passive perspective on your life of obedience. Now, before you go out and just try to work real hard, you should still listen to the rest of my sermon. But, for this moment, as we stare hard at this verse, let this passage work a bit like a grenade or, or an explosive that just detonates any idea in your mind that just destroys it, that you could be passive in your Christian life and still reach the end faithfully. This is in some ways the project of what this church is. I, I think this could be a fine summary. that the, the elders and those working in this church, the fellow congregation members, are all working together to make sure that we reach the end faithfully. There is a risk that you might not reach the end having been faithful. It's God who's doing it, but we are not passive in this process. So you are called not to be passive in your holiness. Fathers in the room here today, and husbands, you are not to be passive in your obedience of leading your families. And mothers who are here raising your children. You're not called to be passive in the raising of your children. Singles, as as you fight for holiness in your life, it is not a passive fight for your holiness. Whatever your station of life is, whether you are a child or an, an older adult that's widowed, your work of obedience in your stage of life is an active fight for holiness. So how's it going? You're called to work out your salvation. Well, Where is the power that gives us the strength to do this? You can turn back to Philippians if you're still in Colossians. Uh, Notice here in this passage what came just before the phrase that I've been talking about. Did you see in verse 12, Paul talks about them doing this not only in his presence, But he says, very interestingly, but much more in my absence. Okay, so I just have to read that and say, well, what is going on here? How how is it that Paul can say that when he's actually gone, that they're going to be faithful in their obedience more? What's happening? Okay, hold on to that question. Let me ask another question. How is it that this obedience that we do is one of fear and trembling? Why wouldn't it just be pure joy? Why is there a gravitas to our our sanctification? Why, as we work and labor to obey, is there a bit of soberness about getting this right and obeying God and killing sin rightly? Why is that the case? So, these are kind of the two questions that I'm stuck asking right now. So, we turn to verse 13. And and notice that verse 13 begins with the word, for. That's an important word. Whenever you see that in the Bible, stop and think about what's happening. For. He says, work out your salvation, for, is going to tell us something. Or he says, have fear and trembling in this. For, and He's going to tell us something. Or he says, obey much more when I'm gone for, verse 13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The power of working out your salvation is that it is God who works in you. Uh, John Piper here is is insightful. He notes that Paul says that they can obey God much more in Paul's absence because God is not absent. And we should obey with a, a sense of fear and trembling, a gravitas, because God is at work in you. How humbling is that? If you're a Christian today, God is at work in your life. He's work in your heart. Your obedience is this inner play of God working in you. Oh my goodness, that should just kill sin tomorrow, shouldn't it? Like, I mean, as you sit down, as you sit down with your family tomorrow and you start to, to get angry, right? And you start to let it out. You have the choice to just stop. Stop those words. Think about this. God is working in your heart. God is at work in you or as you go on your computer to click a button that you know you should not click, God, if you are a Christian, is at work in you to lead you to obedience. Or when you go to, to speak a word to another member, that's just not a healthy word. It's a bit of gossip, or it's a, it's a whisper that should not be said. God is working in you. He's at work working you calling you to obedience well look at verse 13 with me here we see the the who the what the where the how and the why of christian obedience look at it quickly who is the one doing it it's god what is he doing it is god who works he's working where is god working it is god who is working in you How is he working? He is working both to will and to work. Oh, this is glorious. So, God is giving you the will to obey. It's your will, but he's giving it to you. Your desire to obey isn't ultimately or finally coming from you. God's giving it to you as a gift. And it's not just the will to obey, it's the work to will and to work your actual obedience this week is also god letting you do that why is he doing it he's doing it for his good pleasure what a good god we have it brings god pleasure to work in you to make him like himself it brings God joy. God is pleased to bring about obedience in us. I just, just marvel on that for a few minutes this afternoon. God, the scripture is giving us insight into the nature of the God of the universe, and it's telling us that he is pleased. He has pleasure. And what is the type of thing that gives a God Pleasure. What is that pleasure that's in him that's welling up with joy? It's that you would obey and be more like him. What a privilege. God is at work. This is so parallel, by the way, to chapter 1, verse 6 we studied a few weeks ago when we said, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Your hope for obedience this week is that God is at work. Your power this week to obey is that God is working in you. So look to him in faith. This is the work of obedience. But this passage also shows us, number two, the witness of obedience. The witness of our of obedience. You'll notice the next two verses point us to think about how this obedience testifies to the world around us. Look at what it says in verses 14 and 15. We read, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So, he begins here with this strong, very practical point of obedience for you. Grumbling. This word for grumble means to murmur, to to complain about what is happening in your life, to complain about what is happening to you. This word for disputing here, in verse 14, is a word for questioning or arguing. Now, it's, it's not the typical word we see in Paul's letters for a quarrel or a fight, uh, but probably more has to do with questioning or disputing with God about what he's given. Questioning him, putting him on the spot, and disputing with him as if he's made a mistake. Both of these, I believe, are Godward-focused. Our, our complaining and our disputing, our, our questioning of what God's done. Paul Tripp is helpful here. He says, Grumbling says, I deserve better. Disputing with God says, I know better. So does your heart ever say to God that you deserve better? Does your heart ever say to God that you know better? Well, Christians are to do neither. Christians are to obey King Jesus in a way that doesn't question God. I wonder if you've ever watched one of those courtroom shows that captures real footage in crazy scenes in a courtroom. This is evidence of me late night watching YouTube when I probably should have just gone to bed. But, you know, perhaps you know what I'm talking about. These are the times that a a defendant, a real defendant, is brought in before a judge, and he speaks in contempt of court, and he causes a scene. Well, what makes these types of scenes fascinating, now that we have cameras and can start catching these things, is that the upset individual is standing before a judge. And he's putting himself into more trouble as he's losing his temper. Perhaps he raises his voice, or, or he just mouths off, or he, he complains to the judge. And then he gets inevitably just taken away. Well, the craziness of it, and how backwards the situation is, is that that man should be giving the judge the greatest respect in that moment. He should be honoring the judge and the judge's decision. He should be respecting his position. Friends, in a, in a far greater way, How backwards is our obedience to God when it is colored with complaining? How foolish it is to tell the God of the universe that we know better. How foolish is it to tell the God of the universe that we deserve better? Have you forgotten how little you actually deserve in your sin? Friends, we need to realize that any complaining In any situation that we are in if God is truly sovereign is fundamentally against God now I'm not I'm not removing the biblical category of lament I'm not removing the the biblical category of human responsibility where we are called to take action at time I'm talking about the posture of your heart with God's decision we should guard ourselves against complaining against god that we know better than him so when's the last time that you complained maybe just think about it right now in your mind see if you can bring it back up what was it about maybe it was about something serious that you're walking through our our world is pretty difficult it's broken i'm guessing if if you're like me it was probably about something small and foolish it's just dumb You might be, you might not call it murmuring. You might be thinking back. And as Christians, we like to sanitize this. We like to say, I was just processing the reality of this frustrating situation, right? Or we like to say, I I, I just don't want to sugarcoat anything. You know, I want to be honest with, with what's happening. And then we complain. What areas are you tempted to complain in? Maybe a complaint about the spouse that God's given you. Or maybe it's about the spouse that he hasn't yet given you. Maybe you complain about the children that God's given you and how they're acting. Or maybe the children that you're still waiting on. Or the children he's taken away. Maybe you're tempted to complain about this church that God's given you. You've forgotten that this is actually a room full of sinners that are coming together to work on their sin together. Maybe it's the income you have or the home you live in. Maybe it's the car you drive or the in-laws you ended up with. Maybe you're tempted to complain for how someone has wrongly treated you. They have sinned against you. And you grumble about it. God's word says that we are to do all things without grumbling or complaining. So, let me just encourage you, maybe over lunch today, maybe over breakfast with a friend this week, take the effort to admit places in your life that you're tempted to complain. It's how we kill sin. We bring it into the light. Okay? So talk to another Christian about where you're tempted to complain. Acknowledge it. And then maybe even just stop and pray together about it. Pray that God would let you obey his word. We we tend to think that this is a little sin. It's not public. It's not scandalous. It's a respectable sin. But notice what comes next. This is interesting. When Paul begins to talk to his audience, this church, about being obedient witnesses, which is what he's going into now, the sin that he starts with is complaining. Look at the evidences of obedient witnesses in verse 15. Don't grumble so that what? I'm just go look at five brief phrases here. The first phrase, we may be blameless and innocent. Now, that is, it's not intending to say that we are perfect, removed from all sin, but rather we are distinctive, not characterized by sin. Walter Henson notes that when Christian conversation is laced with complaints, Christians have lost their distinctive qualities. Second, we are children of God. That is, as his children, we look like him. We look like Christ. Christ had every reason to complain, but he didn't. Isaiah 53 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Our lack of grumbling tells the world what Christ is like. And I would actually argue the reverse. Your grumbling, if you claim the name of Christ, if you say you're a Christian, tells the world a bit like you're, what your Christ is like. It's a false testimony when you complain as a Christian. But our lack of it shows that we're under a new authority, that we have a new regime under King Jesus. Then it says we are to be without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Friends, we live in a world that has a twisted and crooked view of God, and therefore, twisted and crooked actions. The world that we're in is a bit like that confused man that I was talking about earlier on the YouTube, who's mouthing off to the judge, right? When we, as children of God, obey God, we testify to this crooked world, of what God is like. We, when we joyfully submit to God's sovereignty and his choices for our lives, instead of complaining, then we are without blemish, that is, without the stain of sin. And then he says, We are to shine as lights in the world. Do you see that there? Here, Paul is actually quoting from Daniel 12 where Daniel compares believers on the final resurrection day to those who will shine like lights in a dark sky. I remember several years ago, I I went camping out in the desert. We got into Jeeps, and we we drove through this valley to this campsite, far away from a nearby city, and far away from any light pollution. Maybe you've had a similar experience that you you can think of, what that was like. And as the sun went down... We laid out in the dark, and we looked up at the night sky. And in the darkness of the remote place that we were in, it was that darkness that revealed the contrast of the stars. The stars just shined. You could literally see hundreds more stars than you could have seen back in our city. They stood out like a, like a vast sea of glittering lights. Their difference against the night sky revealed their glory. Well, here, Paul is saying that when we obey King Jesus without grumbling, without a heart of complaining against his sovereign design, that we shine like stars in the sky in a sea of darkness around us. Church, let me just say this. As I step into this role and into this pastorate to help lead you and I come across verses like this, I'm reminded of the need for this in our church. You know, many other churches and Christians today would tell me as your pastor that what we really need is to be relevant and to be relatable. Now, I have no problem with being relatable or and I believe the word of God is relevant. I think that's good things But I would submit to you that what the world most needs around us is not to see how similar to them we are but rather to see how distinctive we are as children of God We are to be the ones that are shining in a sea of darkness so winsomely distinctive Yes, absolutely. Graciously distinctive, please. Lovingly distinctive as we talk to them, absolutely. But distinct, different as we shine in light, as lights in this world. And, and to those who are visiting here with us today, let me just tell you that as, as you listen in to me just talking to a room full of Christians, that this let me tell you about the starting place that makes us distinct. Because all of us here would say, this is not about us. It's not really about what we have done anyway. Christians center themselves around what God has done for us in the gospel. The gospel is is that good news of Jesus Christ. The fact that we were created to know God in perfect joy and that even though being created that way that all of us humans have sinned against god we have made ourselves our own gods but god in his tender love sent his son jesus christ who lived a perfect life and he died the death that we deserve to die taking our sins upon him and then rose from the grave so that he would he would conquer sin and he would conquer death so that now anyone yourself included if you today will look to jesus christ in faith you can be freed from your sin you can experience eternal life with god like you were designed to experience this is what christians center around this is what we believe that god now doesn't just tolerate you God loves you. He wants you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And this glorifies him. If, if you don't believe this or if this is new to you, I just I plead with you, talk to myself or, or talk to anyone here today about this message of salvation. Well, believing this gospel makes us distinct and lastly, this last phrase in the section, we see how we are distinct. Notice he says that Christians are those that are holding fast to the word of life. So our hope for being obedient Christians comes in part to holding fast to the word of God. And that word is light. We should move on. This passage not only shows us the work of obedience, the witness of obedience, but also shows us the worth of obedience. Look at the second half of 16 through the end of 18. We read there, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So here, Paul argues for another reason that the Philippians should seek this kind of distinctive obedience to King Jesus. So that. And he he turns his attention actually to himself, interestingly. He's talking about him there and, and his investment in the church. The Philippians' obedience matters because it matters to Paul. Because it means something to him. I wonder if you've ever thought about your obedience in these terms. That is, your obedience matters because of the others around you in your Christian life. Obviously, we should obey because it glorifies God. But here, Paul seems to be introducing a secondary reason. That the Philippians should obey because their obedience is of great worth to Paul the Christian journey is not just you, one believer, before God. No, the Christian journey is God working through his whole people to present his whole people together before him in holiness. So verse 16 says that Paul looks to the day of Christ. So he's looking forward to that final day when Christ returns and our labor before Christ will be evaluated. And Paul says that in the day of Christ... He wants to look at where the Philippians are, and he wants to be proud of where they are in their obedience, in their holiness, in their sanctification. Now, now don't be distracted here by this word proud, or some translations have to boast. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't the same idea as we were talking about last week, of humility and pride and weighing those out. No, it's not in the same category at all. Rather, rather than a self-glory, what Paul here is getting at is in esteem because of God's glory in their lives. I don't think Paul is wanting glory at all for himself. He wants to take esteem and and treasure and be, be happy about what God is getting glory for in the church's life. And so Paul wants to see these believers cross the finish line. So he gives us three pictures here to help us understand this in the text. Did you see the three pictures? The first one is of a runner competing in a competition. He says that uh, that I did not run in vain. So perhaps just imagine a, a competitive relay race, okay? No runner would train and condition with their team and prepare for a race and then run the first 100 meters of the relay race if they knew that their teammate had quit and wouldn't be waiting to take the baton from them. That would be just foolish. That would be for nothing. That would be running in vain. Or consider a laborer. Often, when Paul uses this language of laborer across the New Testament, he he uses the illustration of a farmer. You can think of any laborer, but that's what I'll talk about here. No farmer would plant uh, a crop and then go and buy the seed and then treat the soil and toil in the soil and then plant the seed and then care for the crop if he knew that he was never going to get a harvest. Just wouldn't do that. That would be foolish. It would be for nothing. It would be labor in vain. Paul's race, Paul's harvest, is the cultivation of the faith of the church. In fact, in chapter 4, he'll tell us that they are his joy and crown. He wants to see a harvest in them. He wants, he places great worth on their obedience. And then look at his third illustration in verse 17. He says this, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering among the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Okay, so here Paul brings to mind two types of Old Testament offerings. He mentions a drink offering. And the drink offering's importance, if you go back and look at it in the text, was actually secondary to what was happening. That was kind of the point. It was was intended as a complement to a main offering. It was an accompaniment to the burnt offering that would be offered. So Paul here is saying his, his work for the church is a bit like an accompaniment to their obedience. So even if he poured himself out, even if he spent his life, and even if he died getting out of prison here, he would see it as merely a a footnote to the center stage. That is the main offering, the burnt offering, the offering of their faith that you see here in the text. That is his primary joy. So he says, friends, I rejoice, and you should rejoice with me, that I could give my whole life and even die, if you are obedient and you present that offering to God, and I am merely a compliment to that. I am merely a sideshow in that. The goal for him is saying that if, if his, he's saying if I give myself up for you, it is a primary worth to me. I am ready to be spent and be spent. He says, for their faith. Friends, why would God give us this picture of Paul caring so much about the obedience of the church? Well, let me just assert to you that our world and their understanding of love doesn't have this selfless nature to it. No, the very understanding, of love, often in our world, is one of consumerism. What can someone else do for me? How do they make me feel? What does this relationship bring about for me? This consumeristic love, I would argue, easily enters into our church, too. We come to church and we are conditioned to say, how does this church serve me? How does it make me feel? What is the the worship here, my preference for worship? Or is the surface here really my style? Do they have the programs and the events that that I need? Our wants and our needs, our desires, our preferences can quickly become the filter that we view church through and our ministry through. And Paul here is an example to us of the opposite. He does not approach his ministry. And he does not approach the church as a consumer, he comes to the Philippian church to build their growth. So let me ask you today, how would your life look different? Instead of asking, how can they serve me? You said, how can, how can I help others grow up in Christ? Who can you encourage in Christ? Maybe if you ask yourself, how can you submit your preferences in ways that are just helpful to others? How can you give your energy to seeing others be more faithful and obedient in Christ? Maybe this means that you schedule a coffee with someone this week to encourage them and and talk about your your life in Christ together. Or maybe this means you you write somebody an email encouraging them and, and telling them that you're praying for them this week. Maybe this means that your family has someone else over for dinner. But but a church that is shaped by this type of an example goes into community with each other looking to build one another up in obedience and faithfulness. This is the church that models the heart that Paul has. It's a church that looks like families inviting singles over to be part of their lives. Or maybe it's a church that has older members of the church taking the initiative to pursue younger members in the church family. Or maybe it looks like singles giving extra time and energy to perhaps serve a busy mom or to help a needy family. Or, Or maybe it's a church where healthy couples in the church notice the single moms that are present among us or the the wives or the husbands that are unequally yoked with an unbelieving spouse, and they welcome them in and let them join in their family rhythms. This is a church that understands that our obedience is a group project. So who can you pour your life out to this week? How can you follow Paul's example here? If you forget to do this, other people in this church will suffer. Well, we should conclude. I've tried to convince you of three things, all from the text, that your obedience is a work, and it is a work of God that you are not passive in. And your obedience is a witness. It shines to a watching world and tells them that we are distinct. And lastly, that your obedience should be of great worth to others as theirs is to you. You should be like Paul. Friends, we are those who have a new king. We are under a new regime, under the reign of the good King Jesus. Would you pray with me that this week we could cultivate this culture of faithfulness among our bodies? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for you are so kind to work in us. We thank you for this promise that you, oh God, are the one working to build us up and to sanctify us. Oh, if this wasn't true, where would our hope be? Thank you that you are working in us. God, I pray for First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach. May we be a church that is a a bright witness that is distinct in the world around us. Father, may we be a church that is caring one for another and actively being involved in one another's faithfulness in the Christian walk. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.